0: Joy, 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 heaven you, joy, joy. So, Jyotish, thank you for taking the time.
1: Very happy to be able to do this with you. It's a great project.
0: Thank you. Thank you, to my Mother, for inspiring <laughs> it. Can you tell us about your upbringing, your early life, and maybe how that pointed towards Ananda?
1: Yeah, it was... Actually, I came from a very interesting family. Um... I was born in 1943, I was a war baby. And I was born actually in Edmonton, Canada, Alberta, Canada. My father and mother were American, but my father was there. He was an architect and he was uh, working on a war project. But he grew up, um, was born in 1907, and so he grew up in the beginning of the... Uh, 20th century and his father died when he was relatively young so at the age of 16 he had to become the breadwinner for his family and he ended up uh, not only doing that, he had always had a paper route but when he needed more money he took a big step of investment and bought the best newsstand in the town where he was growing up because in those days everybody went by the newsstand who was going to work and in doing that he was able to um, not only support himself and his family but save enough so that he could go to college so he went to Yale and uh, studied architecture and had an extremely good degree, could have worked anywhere in the Country, but he was more artistic than he was mercantile. And so he ended up having his own practice, his own uh, small practice. And uh, so I grew up in northern Iowa, which is where my mother was from Decorah, Iowa. And then when I was in fifth grade or so, we moved, uh, I don't know, 50, 80 miles north of that to Minnesota, Austin, Minnesota. Austin is the original Spam capital. It is, yeah. So I have that claim to fame. So it was the center of Hormel meatpacking plant which produced all the Spam starting in World War II and um, was was well known. But it, it allowed much more scope for Uh, being an architect and and having a viable business. And so, um, among other things, my father was very progressive in the sense that he did not want my mother just to be a housewife. They had really a partnership where they worked together. It was very creative. My mother studied some weaving and and actually won some international prizes as, as a weaver and so our family was very artistic and uh forward thinking and um so creativity was um very much encouraged in our life as well as going the non-traditional route was encouraged they they weren't locked into oh, this is the way things have to happen mm-hmm. and so Later on, of course, uh, as my life played out and I started making uh, non-conventional decisions and, in fact, they became the axis of my life, my parents were, if not understanding, at least supportive of the choices I was making. Mm -hmm. So, And I had uh, an older brother. And a younger sister, and then a much younger brother who um, came along. I was 11 or 12 years old by the time he came along. But my older brother, I lived when I was growing up, I lived in a small, relatively isolated neighborhood. And my older brother was four years older, and all of the people that I knew were at least two years older, mm-hmm. and so I was always striving to um, catch up mm-hmm. and to be able to play with and work with the uh, older older children, uh, which stood me in good stead because it accelerated me, and to a certain extent I was a natural leader from the time mm-hmm. I was very young, and and that helped. May develop in that way. Hmm.
0: So, how did you end up coming to Ananda?
1: Well, I went to school uh, in uh, psychology and I started, I did one year at Northwestern University and then completed my degree at the University of Minnesota. But even though my field of study was psychology, my real interest was in the scope of consciousness. Even as a high school student my um, theme paper, term paper was on Freud's uh, understanding of dream theory. Huh. And so I was always interested in how the mind works and especially the scope of the mind. and. The psychology that I studied did not answer that in any kind of a way. So right after, I mean the day after I graduated from college, I left and came to San Francisco where things were happening at that time. I would visited there one time a couple of summers earlier and um, really liked it. So I came out and during the time I was kind of getting settled, it was just... It was 1966, one could say, the very beginning of the hippie movement uh, wasn't really f- really in full swing yet, but certainly the overtures of the symphony were happening by that time. And during that time, there was a lot of exploration of consciousness, chemical and otherwise, hmm. um, but I came upon the autobiography of a yogi. And that absolutely changed my life. It just blew the top off of what my scientific limited understanding of the scope of human consciousness was. And it just really, really interested me. And then a few months after I read that, uh, through uh, a recommendation, we, my brother-in-law, who was also Um, living uh, in San Jose at the time, we found, uh, were given Swami Kriyananda's address of his apartment in San Francisco and went there on Easter Sunday afternoon in 1967 and uh, just knocked on his door. And he introduced himself and we introduced ourselves. And um, I've often kind of joked that uh, his first, Invitation was to come in and said, "I'm working on a project. Would you like to help?" And of course, we said yes. But I have often joked that uh, that uh, working on his project is still going on, a little over fifty-five years later now. Right.
0: You say it was your brother-in-law that.
1: Yes, my brother-in-law.
0: How did he know about Swami Krishnananda? He
1: had. Uh, he was living in San Jose, and my sister also, they were married, and um, he was always interested in philosophy, and uh, he met a professor at San Jose, or one of the colleges there, I'm not sure which one, uh, of philosophy, and they got discussing autobiography of a yogi, and that professor knew about Swami Kriyananda and uh, knew his address, so he gave my brother-in-law, Dan, um, Swami's address, and uh, then we both went together because we were both interested. (laughs) And my brother-in-law and sister were quite involved in Ananda in some of the early years, first two or three years, but their life uh, ended up being somewhat chaotic, and so they they weren't able to stick with it.
0: What were your earliest impressions of Swami?
1: My first impression started that very first afternoon. And after we were invited in, there was a small group, maybe a half a dozen people, and some were cooking lunch and some were working on this little mailing. And so we just joined in with the group. Swami was very welcoming, as if, uh, you know, he had just met us, but we were immediately part of the family. And so they were going out after they finished the meeting, uh, mailing, I mean, to have a picnic in Golden Gate Park. And so we uh, were invited along for that. And it was really a transformative experience. Swami was in the early days especially, extremely dynamic and energetic. And he brought a guitar, he sang some songs, um, he talked about his experiences with Master. And for instance, we had a picnic and there was a fruit salad. And he was saying, you know, each of the these uh, fruits that we're eating in this salad has a particular consciousness that it helps impart. The bananas help with humility and the cherries with joy and so on. It was just charming and and interesting. And um, then after that, about maybe less than a month later, uh, Swami in those days was doing a kind of a circuit of teaching around the Bay Area. And so he would teach a class series, six weeks long, which would be about an hour of Hatha Yoga, and then a little break, and then an hour class on Raja Yoga, or what we would think of now as how to meditate. And so he was giving that class in San Francisco and um, San Jose and Marin County and Sacramento, and, He would kind of do a circuit and so the next time it came to San Francisco, I ended up taking that course and then every time he taught it I would take the same course because it was basically the only way I could have that continuing stimulation. And after the second or third time he saw I was more than usually interested and so had me helping out with it.
0: It sounds like you attended classes for a while, but I'm suspecting that you started teaching fairly soon too. How did that come about?
1: Pretty soon, yes. Um, Swami did not have any crew in those early days, so actually my first teaching experience was even before in about a year after I met him, a little more than a year. um, He asked me to quit my job as a social worker and become his assistant. And then I was teaching regularly. But even before that, um, in the early years, we had a little ashram in in San Francisco, the very, very first one. Swami didn't live there, nor did I, but my sister and brother-in-law did. And there were about six people that lived there. And during Swami's touring around and doing all of these classes, he um, asked people whether they would like a more advanced class. And a lot of people raised their hands. And, and so he offered that class. Um, and then, because very few, relatively, his classes were 30, 40, 50 people. And I think only about six or eight people actually ended up wanting to sign up and take that class. And Swami was in a dilemma. He didn't feel he could cancel it because he'd promised it, but he didn't feel he could devote that amount of time. So he asked me to teach it. And I said, but by this time, I had probably had three or four rounds of his six week course. I said, but Swami, I've never had an advanced class. He said, oh, that doesn't matter. Just hold the postures longer. And, and so he kind of threw me in the deep end right away. And then soon after that, um, in order to give him a break, I would often take one and occasionally two nights out of a six-week series. So I would do that in... Maybe in Marin County or in um, San Jose or in Sacramento or or San Francisco. And that gave him at least one night off because otherwise he had no break at all.
0: This is time traveling ahead a long way, but it strikes me that his way of bringing you in right away um, seems like a training for what could have happened in the future which has happened of you assuming that role
1: yes i'm i'm sure that's true i i don't know that he did that consciously but i think that we had had that relationship in previous hmm. lives in fact he he uh, speculated that during the time he was henry i had been his son huh. and um one of the chief supporters of his legacy at that time. And in many ways he certainly treated me that way. And so I don't know that it was a conscious thought that, you know, that this is what I was destined to do, but I think there was definitely the sense that it was a natural relationship to have of me being, if not the prime support, at least in those early years, a prime support Mm -hmm. of what he was doing. And then, of course, many, many more people came once Ananda got started. Mm -hmm.
0: How do we get from San Francisco to Ananda Village?
1: Well, Swami had always wanted to have a community. As he said in his, path from the age of 16 on, he'd thought of an in intentional community. <clears throat> and so he had purchased early on, probably before I came to him in 67, In that year he had purchased the land which was the meditation retreat. And so he was intending to start a village there. But it started out as a meditation retreat. But um, when the time was right, in the spring of 1969, uh, we both moved from San Francisco to the meditation retreat. But in between 67 and 69, um, especially in 68, almost every weekend that was open, we would come up, together and, and and sometimes with other people to work on projects at the meditation retreat.
0: What was your impression back then of what was happening around you?
1: Around me in the sense of Ananda, around mm-hmm. me, yeah. Well, it was a scattered but slowly coalescing group. Swami did uh, as well as his classes then he began to have a Thursday night satsang. And that allowed uh, people who were from various areas, and it was no longer appropriate just to take classes, the same class, over and over. It allowed a uh, satsang very much like what we do now. There'd be chanting, uh, and he would get everybody participating. He, he taught me to play the mudranga, a couple of uh, particular rhythms, so I was the drummer and passed out, you know, bells and things. So he got people participating. So there'd be chanting, three, four chants, then meditation. Then he would give a, a little discourse, and then often there'd be some little snack kind of thing mm. so that, that there could be a, a connection. And so in that way, it allowed people who wanted a longer term connection to begin to come together. And some of those, a few of those people, Jaya was one and uh, a few others were among the very first residents that came up. Mm-hmm. And um, then others were just people who had heard about Swami or maybe heard him speak or maybe he had taken his classes, but. Uh, those kind of pioneer types who were ready and karmically able to leave the city or leave what they were doing and move to a rural property like the meditation retreat. Mm -hmm.
0: What was your role initially?
1: Well, for the first two or three months, um, my role was just helping out doing everything. Everybody did everything that was needed in those early days. Then, through some circumstances that are a little complicated, probably I don't need to go into them, um, we got the property at the farm. And so now we had two properties. And so we had the meditation retreat. Swami had a little geodesic dome and was living there. And I moved to the, what we called the farm in those days. It was, uh, what we now think of as the Village, and so I moved there. And I, along with a couple of other people, uh, were the was the general manager. So we did the organization and uh, um, anything that that needed to happen. We were kind of the people in charge of. Trying to coordinate things, mm-hmm. and especially I was because I'd been with Swami longer, and the other two ended up leaving after the first summer anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was I was ended up being the general manager at the uh, village for the first ten years, and uh, next to Swami, any time there was teaching involved, it generally uh, landed in my lap. Mm-hmm.
0: Anything else you'd like to share about those early years?
1: Well, it was extremely dynamic. It was chaotic, especially the first summer. <clears throat> we had a lot of people coming. Somehow, this was 1969, and by that time, the Communities Movement, or Commune Movement, Uh, was pretty much in full swing. And so Ananda had a kind of a reputation uh, that spread as being a place that was happening. And so that first summer, we would sometimes have three or four cars arriving with people who had been, us in Yosemite, man, and I heard about this place. And they told me if I came here, you'd give me a house and... Um, I could live here with me and my kids, and so where is that? And so we'd end up, well, there's a river nearby, and uh, if you want to camp out there, you can do that. But And there, the facilities at Ananda were very primitive. Uh, we, I was living in a tent during that first summer, and then um, we ended up making teepees to, in order to survive the winter. Mm-hmm. But the reason I say this is things were very chaotic and quite scattered, but beneath that, there was a core of very serious devotees. Hmm. And um, I, I firmly believe that we had been together in the astral plane, had many times done communities together, And we incarnated in order to help this work. Master needed help. Swami incarnated to help him. Swami had his own particular kind of spiritual family, and we incarnated to help him do this great work. Mm -hmm. And so that core of deep devotees was what remained and what the community grew around.
0: Did Swami talk much about that, about the past lives and what he expected this time around?
1: Yeah, he didn't talk too much about past lives at any one time, you know. You live with somebody for 50 years and once in a while he would touch on something and that would remain in your memory so you gang them all up together and you have a kind of a coherent story. But uh, it wasn't like a theme that he dwelt on. Mm-hmm. he would occasionally in a lecture refer to the fact that it feels like we have all done this before together and okay. so on but Swami was extremely dynamic he was still in the very early days uh teaching and in the cities he would go to Sacramento and uh, San Francisco and uh teach in order to bring in the money needed to pay the mortgage, um, which we assumed as a group uh, after a year or two, but the point being that he was extremely dynamic, um, working nonstop, so he would be out teaching all week, and then he would come and he would do a retreat on Saturday, Sunday service, and counseling, and then at the same time he was writing Uh, The lessons, 14 Steps to Perfect Joy in those days, um, that became Raja Yoga. So extremely dynamic, but everybody else, you know, you read stories about Master, how Master would work through the night and people would work with him. It was the same, especially that core group. Whatever needed to be done, everybody pitched in to make it
0: happen. You mentioned him writing The Path. Uh, What was it like before he wrote that in terms of knowing his life with Yogananda? Did he talk about that much? What was it like after he wrote that?
1: Well, you know, Swami always self-referred as a disciple of Yogananda. And so, always woven into his talks were not only Yogananda's teachings, but stories to illustrate those teachings. And many of those, of course, ended up in the Path. Uh, Path wasn't written uh, until some years later. So I think he probably started it in 74. Uh, I know that during the fire, he was in Hawaii editing it. So um, uh, at least in that time period. But many of the stories that went into that he would tell during satsangs. Mm
0: -hmm. You mentioned the fire. What were your own experiences during that?
1: Well, Davy and I um, had gotten married the year before the fire. And so we were married in March of 1975. And then uh, after a few months, she got pregnant. And so we had a child and uh, our our son. And he was born 11 days before the fire came. And so we were living in a Judizic dome that I had built. And uh, for those who are vaguely familiar with uh, Ananda Village, it was roughly around the area where the Kretzman's house and shop are. It was uh, close to that that uh, location at Ananda's property. So um, the fire came from the area of Mother Truckers in North San Juan and came up over the hill on a very hot, dry uh, June day. And at that time, the uh, uh, winds were blowing strongly. And so a group of us tried to stop that fire but it soon became obvious that uh, we couldn't stop it as it came up and it was in the trees. So when we couldn't stop it, I went down and began trying to dig a little trench around our dome, thinking that maybe I could stop that. In the meantime, for the first time, Davy had taken our son, and she went in to have a doctor's appointment. He was, as I said, Eleven days old, and so that was the first doctor's appointment. So, I was at home trying to, uh, you know, protect our home, and Vidura's son came driving down uh, the road in a truck, and he said, "You've got to get out of here. You got to get out of here. The fire is only minutes away," and I was so focused on trying to um get everything protected that i wasn't really paying attention i looked up the hill and the fire the flames were 30 40 feet high up in the trees and it was obvious that nothing a little foot wide trench was not going to stop anything so i went into kind of yogi mode and said i'm not attached to anything i i give it all to god whatever you want, Lord, take it." And Duane, Vidura's son, said, well, we have five minutes, why don't you grab some clothes? So I ran in and grabbed a few clothes, and Davy had packed up everything on our altar because she was intending to clean it when she came home, and uh, she hadn't been able to kind of keep it clean uh, right after the pregnancy. And so I was able to grab all of our stuff from the altar, our harmonium, a little bit of clothing, and that was it. And then threw that in the back of the truck and went down. By that time, Davy had arrived back at the village. She'll probably tell that story herself. And um, I didn't want her to worry. Of course, it was a very stressful time. And she didn't know whether I was alive or not. And so kind of coming out of the smoke, I came down. And because our dome leaked at the seams, I, I wanted to make a light of the moment. And I first words I said were, well, we don't have to worry about leaks anymore. And she laughed and kind of uh, partly out of relief and partly in appreciation of the fact that I was taking things well. And we managed to get through, everybody, you know, um, we just worked together doing what we could to support each other, help each other, and uh, began gradually to rebuild. But about, I don't know, from a third to a half of the people who were resident at that time, they weren't really here for Um, the philosophy or the life, as much as they had come here and kind of settled in and uh, didn't have enough reason to move on. But with no housing, about a third to a half of the community residents left after the fire. And the rest of us began um, a very active period of rebuilding.
0: I've heard that you started several businesses And when did those happen?
1: Well, they happened early on. The only business that we had at the beginning was the meditation retreat. And um, it it was barely able to support the people who were working on the staff of the meditation retreat, let alone the growing population. Mm -hmm. We also had the publications business. But... You know, we're talking about 1972, 73. There were only three or four books at that time and maybe a record or two. And so we couldn't draw enough income uh, from the sources that um, were kind of specifically to share the teachings. And so we knew that we had to do something to support ourselves. And someone suggested that the Hare Krishnas were making a lot of money uh, doing incense. And so this was actually right at the very beginning. So um, at the the winter of 1969, um, so the village was barely here. We took possession of the Land in July of 1969, July 4th. Um, so uh, I lived in a teepee for a while, and then um, during that winter, I moved to San Francisco for a few months because I, you know, I could then have access to uh, getting getting something started. I just kind of invented it. I read what I could and invented how to make incense. It was completely crazy what I did, but it worked for a while. And um, so the Hare Krishnas never made their own incense. They bought pre-made incense from, um, from India, or what was called punk sticks, which was something that you lit fireworks with. They bought those and scented them, but they never made their own incense, but I didn't know that. So, um, anyway, I kind of invented a method of making incense and it it worked well enough and um, we began selling that and then uh, a year later I also added a line of uh, scented oils, kind of like perfume. But at one point that business was employing more than half the people living at Ananda and um, was, was really quite successful as uh, a means of employment at the time. I want to skip ahead because um, there's an interesting thing that, that happened many years later. In fact, the year of Swami's passing, we went to a reader like a Bragu reader, and um, this was in Bangalore. And it was called a Nadi reading based on Sukhdeva's line. And the uh, reader, as he was reading, I won't divert because it's a fascinating story in and of itself, but um, he said that you've never been in business. And I said, oh no, no, that's not true. I started a business and ran it for several years. And he looked at his little kind of ancient Sanskrit um, page and he looked at it more carefully. He said, no, you've never been in business. It's like he was telling me that I never started. That that was my interpretation. And so I said, but, but I started this business. He said, did you do that in order to get profit for yourself? Uh, or did you do that as a service to your guru's work? And I said, well, uh, as a service to my guru's work, he said, that's not business, that's guru seva. And so I I know that there are are some people that feel that it's not right to operate a business. Everybody should be teaching or everybody should be, I don't know, helping with books or something. But. For a community movement, we need lots and lots of different expressions and different ways of earning an income. But the difference is not what you do or the form of it. It's the motivation. And if you're doing whatever you do to help serve Master's work, Ananda's work, then it isn't business. It's Guru Seva. Mm -hmm. And, and we make a mistake when we say one kind of seva is okay, another kind of seva isn't okay. It's all needed and all, all helpful. So I probably didn't realize that at the time. I was not a natural businessman, and I didn't stick with it too long, because in 1976, um, or 79, I should say, Davy and I, moved down to San Francisco Mm -hmm. to start the ashram there. Mm -hmm.
0: So what prompted you to move down to San Francisco?
1: Well, ignorance. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, because we always were working to do whatever Swami needed. And he had gone down at that time to do some classes. And so he asked us to come down and help. And I don't know whether... Explicitly, he was thinking to start a community ashram but certainly the idea of the city centers had just started. The very first one was in Sacramento uh, but there were only three or four people living there. Uh, Swami had a group working with him, maybe 15, 20 people in San Francisco. And um, he was giving a lot of classes, kind of because he had lived there for many years, as I had. Um, He was trying to energize uh, the first real city center. And so we were looking for some place where that could happen. And um, ended up finding this enormous house, 44 rooms, mansion in the ritziest part of San Francisco, Pacific Heights, uh, for those who have seen the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, the house that was that, that house for Mrs. Doubtfire was less than a block away from us. But it was down the hill without the view. We were at the crest of the hill with the panoramic view of of the bay, San Francisco Bay, so absolutely gorgeous house, 44 rooms, but there were 30 of us living together in that house for about three or three and a half, four years. But I'm skipping ahead. Swami uh, had these satsangs generating the energy, but he had to come back up to the village. So he asked Davy and me to stay. We had, our son was three years old at this time, but to stay and get the work uh going in San Francisco. And so we stayed there for three years until our son really needed uh, uh, more schooling than what we could find there and needed to be at the village. And so, but we got that started and it stayed in San Francisco for a couple of years longer. And then it uh, transited down to what is now our work in Palo Alto. But uh, it was the first of the large city centers. And Davy and I, our work has always been being pioneers. Mm -hmm. So whatever was new, we were kind of on the front lines. And we were the first couple that taught together. Mm -hmm. And so that model of teaching and leading a center happened there in San Francisco.
0: Jyotish, I want to jump ahead. Um, We know a lot about Ananda history and you've written a lot and talked a lot. I'm intrigued as to what it was like when Swami passed and what it was like for you in particular just coming into that role of directing Ananda.
1: Yeah, well it was a big burden in a certain sense. On the other side, Swami had prepared us. So we had been with Swami for from the very beginning. So call it 1970, just to make things easy. By the time he passed in 2013, that's uh, 43 years. As I said, I was the village manager for the first 10 years, then from 69 to 79. Then we started the San Francisco Center. Then we went to Italy and uh, helped get the work going in Italy. And then, you know, so we were always pioneering. Mm -hmm. But um, also, we were always kind of doing whatever the next iteration of Swami's work was, and especially for the last 10 years or 15 years of when he, before he passed, uh, because we were also the um, kind of spiritual heads here at the village, um, more and more organizationally, he just left things to us because he was never really deeply involved in the details of organization. And so we had long been prepared and uh, he had been preparing us. Nonetheless, you know, his passing, while not unexpected, was also shocking because it happened so quickly. And so, you know, the role um, ended up for me, and Devi, but as the Dharmacharya, I was named as the Dharmacharya after him in his will. Um, It was a sense of responsibility. And I referred earlier to the Nadi reading, and it was really quite a remarkable reading, by far the most interesting that we've ever had. But at the end of it, Normally people ask questions, but he just was reading and as he got farther and farther into the reading this pundit, his eyes just got brighter and brighter. When we left, he said, I rarely get to do a reading like this. Usually it's what business, how can I get more money, how can I get my son married off, Uh, those kinds of things. He said, rare that I get to do a reading like this but um, a, a truly spiritual one. And he said, you know, the purpose of your life is guru, seva, and, and moksha. But toward the end, when people typically ask questions, he continued reading from these, um, I think they were, I, I don't know, palm leaves with ancient Sanskrit on them. Anyway, reading from that, he said, um, you did not come here because you had questions, but you came for reassurance, and you will uphold the honor of your guru's organization, mm. which was the perfect answer mm-hmm. for us, because, you know, nobody's going to step into Swami's shoes uh, the way Sw- and Swami and no one else could have stepped into Master's shoes, but to be able to carry on and uphold the honor of Ananda and Swami and Master's work, not us, obviously, alone, all of us together, but the fact through God's and Master's grace and Swami's guidance, Ananda has stayed strong and vibrant um, has been very fulfilling. And it's been a lot of challenge, a lot of um, energy, Um, but increasingly it feels that it's really, we aren't doing it. God's just doing it through us. Mm -hmm. And that has become, obviously it's part of our teaching, but it's become more and more sincerely felt over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think just the sense of being able to do what we could to keep Ananda alive and vibrant. Um, I feel quite fulfilled in the, not only the work we've done, but the, um, I'll, I'll just say the attunement and the dedication with which we've done it. George mm-hmm.
0: so just tell me about your painting.
1: Oh, that's an interesting thing. You know I mentioned that I came from a very artistic family but I was the rebel my older brother was an architect my sister was a potter and taught pottery and so I had always to have a little I don't know elbow room rebellion so I went the other way and uh didn't get into the arts but there was something in me that came from my mother especially, that anything that needed to be done, just go ahead and do it. And so the wall behind us is a relatively big wall, and the biggest painting we had was about that big uh, that we'd gotten in Italy. And so one day I decided, well, it needs a bigger painting. I think I'll just go ahead and paint it. And um, so my first two or three attempts were just nothing. But after a few attempts, and um, I'll let you take a, a video of it, but there's a painting that we still have, which is about the eighth or 10th painting I did, which is of tulips, and it turned out quite nicely. And in fact, we did end up having a nice painting here on the wall that was appropriately sized, but for one thing there was a, I don't know, a potential that had always been there because my mind is very creative and I'm always looking for solutions or new ways to do things and it had gone basically into the communities movement. You know, I built a couple of houses even though I didn't know how to do carpentry and uh, anything that needed to be done, I would try to figure out a way to do it. Well, painting came along in that same vein, but as I got into it, I found that I got a lot of joy from it. I loved working with the colors. I had, had a color therapy session and it just kind of, my brain came out of that kind of lit, like I, I had helium in my brain or something, you know. And so I realized from that that I needed to have more color around me. So painting allowed that to happen. And then when Swami found out I was painting, he was very encouraging. He said, you're too mental and painting will help you to develop more of an intuitive side and so um i've just gotten into it and i've never formally studied but i've done a lot of you know trying to study on my own and do it as well as i can but it isn't to do something to get the product or the end result as much as it is the joy of the process and the learning and um i found As something that is, um, because our work is very much concerned with organization and people and details and a lot of, a lot of things to juggle, painting is spontaneous and uh, very kind of freeing. And so it's been a wonderful mental balance. Mm -hmm. And so I've now painted over 200 paintings Mm. over the years. So I've been painting for mm, close to 25 years. Mm. Uh, But it's been a wonderful, wonderful addition. And it's also I think frankly a good model for people Mm. at Ananda. That um, it's important to be creative. It's important if you can to have a hobby. um, That is fulfilling for you, and and to give that quality energy, because the spiritual path is multi-dimensional, multifaceted, and if we are too narrow in our personal expression of how we live, it it doesn't serve us well spiritually either, mm. and so uh, painting has been not only uh, something I. Really have enjoyed. It's a way to share. Many other people have enjoyed and have paintings of mine, but more than that, it's been a real spiritual blessing.
0: How did you get your name?
1: Well, I got the first spiritual name at Ananda as I uh, have, I don't know, kind of the um, karma of, getting, of doing the first. Uh, at Ananda, many things. Anyway, uh, it was at the meditation retreat. I think it was in probably 1970 or 71. And Swami came up to me and just kind of out of the blue, because he hadn't given anyone spiritual names, out of the blue he said, how would you like to have the name Jyotish? And I said, well, I'm fine, sir. And he says, yes, it means... Uh, The inner light. And so, you know, I mean, I just, Swami said it, so I did it, and um, then of course he started giving um, quite a, a, very soon then, more names. So I think the idea of wanting to give spiritual names probably had been bubbling in his consciousness, but this was the first release of it.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you think the name means
1: to you? For me, it means the pursuit of God in an interior way, and especially through uh, the light of the spiritual eye. It's also a term used in India for an astrologer. And I had a passing interest in astrology uh, very early on, but I never had time to develop it. And so that that is not really part of it, but very much for me, I would say Kriya is my central spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. But next to Kriya, looking into the light in the forehead, uh, I think has been certainly one of the uh, most important aspects. And so Swami, many of us have names that he intuitively felt were right for us. And I i think he just intuitively felt this was the right name. and So I've related to it always in its spiritual sense and in its, uh, I don't know, relationship to sadhana more than just as a name.
0: You spoke about sadhana. And I, you also have a license plate that says to moksha. Can you tell me about just your own spiritual ambitions?
1: Well, I would like to get to moksha in this lifetime. Um, I would say that, well, I'll just be honest. I feel really good about the quality and the depth of how I've been able and by extension, how Davy and I together have been able to serve. I would give myself an A grade with that. Mm -hmm. But whether it's withheld, whether it's a potential, I would like to have a deeper, true contact of inner communion with God. I'm striving to achieve samadhi, and I certainly have not achieved that. And so, sadhana has been very important. It's been central to our lives. Um, We're very sincere and very regular in our sadhana. I doubt that I've missed having two meditations a day. I, I doubt that I have not done at least two meditations a day for the last 25 years. So very regular, um, it's, it's very much central. But I do wish that uh, I could have a deeper inner life. But whatever God wants, that's what I'm happy with. And our life has been uh, outwardly demanding in many, many different dimensions and for many years. But when we get the chance to set things aside and just be in seclusion, i I can feel the resonance of having done that for in, in past mm-hmm. lives, and that's as I say, I'm happy to do whatever's needed for Master and for Master's mission. Um, but i I would like to have a deeper um, inward connection than what I have but I'm assuming that that will come and so um, whatever happens it's it's in God's hands in God's timing and I'm happy to offer myself into that ray
0: thank you that's a beautiful reply it means a lot okay final question what do you see for Ananda's future
1: More and better, that's primarily it. I think Ananda is on a very, very good course. We're going through a period of worldwide expansion that we can't keep up with. Uh, The numbers of people that we're serving, um, I'm not quite sure who added it up, but somebody said that uh, we're serving more than 150,000 people worldwide now, and it um, certainly feels like that could be true, that Ananda has a big dynamic work, but it isn't the numbers. The Numbers could come by—a uh, rock band has way, way more fans and followers than what we have. It's the quality of the service and the attunement and Ananda has grown uh, primarily deeper, but also within that, uh, more expansive and broader. And so I think that it's very good. Um, We are missing a middle generation of people in their 50s who should be ready now to take over uh, the different community leadership and so on, We have a lot of people who have served beautifully, but they're now in their 60s, 70s. And we have a whole wonderful group of young people in their 20s and 30s, but not so many who are 50, 55, late 40s, with successively uh, more responsible uh, roles to be prepared. That too is in God's hands. Swami said to Diana one time in India as he was leaving and she was worried. Swami said, remember, this work is not your work. It's not my work. It's the work of Babaji and of Master. And so um, I, th- I think the primary thing and I would say the primary success of Ananda is that we have truly been able to stay in attunement to the very best of our ability with Master, Master's Rays, with Swamiji, with Babaji, and whatever they want is what's going to happen. Um, I do think that new forms of worship and new forms of community are coming because maybe the pandemic Um, and the need to work uh, remotely is going to allow for communities to come together and be able to solve the economics in ways that weren't possible three or four or five years ago. I don't know what the form will be, but I feel very strongly that, especially the first generation, our generation has built, a very strong foundation on which anything that Master and Babaji want to erect, that foundation is now ready for, for the next adventure. And if we stay in tune, and if we stay selflessly dedicated, then it can't go wrong.
0: Thank you, Jotish.
1: It's been
0: a joy. Thank you.